Hey, it's Greg. Great to have you here for the podcast for July 7th for Toronto Today. Well, we got, it's not an exclusive, but it's his first GTA radio interview, and he did it with us on Toronto Today. Mayor of Brampton, Patrick Brown, who's under siege a little bit in Brampton. He's got his own fires to put out there, uh, and a lot of complexities to that as well. That's a story in itself. Um with regarding some other members of city council. And we talk about the uh, dismissal and disqualification from the CPC race and whether anything can be done about that and whether he still wants to lead that particular party. A visit with Amber Mack as well. And uh, I've got thoughts on exactly what could transpire with Canada and allowing abortions to Americans. There are some that understandably say we need to give people options and give women options in this trying time in the United States, but we've got others saying, are we going to crush an already incredibly loaded up healthcare system? So both sides of that issue, we cover that as well. That's coming up. Toronto Today begins now. The mayor of Brampton, a candidate uh, for the federal Conservative Party of Canada leadership, and obviously Tuesday night, he got word um, that he was being disqualified from that party's leadership race. A notice of, of appeal has been filed, a warning of impending legal action as well. Let's hear from the man himself. He is Patrick Brown. Patrick, thank you very much for making the time for us on our show today. We appreciate it. Hey, Greg, it's always nice to talk to you. What do you know more about these allegations and where they potentially came from than you might have 24 hours ago? You must have some spidey sense, some suspicion about things more than you did a, a day ago at this time. Well, part of the challenge and the reason we weren't able to um, respond uh, to the party with much detail is that they said there was an enormous allegation that uh, someone working on our campaign was being paid by a business. And so the rules in our party are clear that the, you know, there can't be corporate donations. And so if someone was working on our campaign during the day when they were supposed to be working, that would be considered a corporate donation. And so we have 1,800 people working on our campaign, uh, volunteering. And so it's possible to um, find out if if someone is working when they're not supposed to be, volunteering when they're not supposed to be. We asked the party for a name, for a business, for a company, and they wouldn't provide any information, only that um, the amount was um, less than $10,000 um, that someone that they believed was a corporate donation. So, you know, it was like responding to a phantom allegation. Um, and uh, it's unfortunate because I believe the Liberals are so beatable. I believe the Canadians are uh, eager to have a reasonable conservative alternative, but it appears like the conservative party establishment want Pierre Polyev. And I believe it will be a gift to the liberal party. You know, here's a guy that was the only one that spoke out against the um, apology to indigenous Canadians with the residential school apology. Uh, Pierre Polyev is the only person speaking out against banning vaccine mandates for children for things like polio and, and smallpox. Um, you know, he said that he would use cryptocurrency to fight inflation. Mm -hmm. And since he made that statement, it's lost 60% of its value. So, you know, it's uh, a ludicrous policy position to take. And I'm really worried that this would be a giant gift to the, to the Liberal Party. And I think, you know, Pierre Pauly and his team may be celebrating that they got me disqualified. Um, on a flimsy anonymous allegation, but I believe the only person who's really celebrating today and should be celebrating is Justin Trudeau, because if he gets to run against uh, a conservative like Pierre Polyev, he's going to have the easiest 
election he's ever had. There seems to be credible reporting about allegations against you coming from your own campaign. Would you then put two and two together and say there may have been and may be people working in your campaign whose goal is not to get you elected, but to get Pierre Polyev elected? No, you know, it's impossible to um, um, respond. um, We just be guessing when they say they've got an example they got we have one one example of of someone they believe was working for us during their their work hours through a corporate donation and so um you know we just be um guessing unless the party provides us a name and information um it's it's impossible to uh, try to um give more information but it'd be human instinct to be suspicious of it do you feel do you feel set up in this process no, I believe that they were looking for any reason to um, disqualify me. They they hung their hat on this one, uh, but I believe they're looking for any any reason possibly to to disqualify me. It was um, uh, clearly uh, they they got pressured this way uh, by uh, by uh, Pierre's campaign, um, and you know he has a lot of influence in the party establishment. This is not the first case he's used his influence to um, to bully other campaigns. You know they threatened to kick out a caucus, my campaign co-chair, Michelle Rempel-Garner, mm-hmm. um, Jean Charest's senior member, senior supporter, Ed Fast, who was the party finance critic, got fired as finance critic for um, calling Pierre Polyev's cryptocurrency uh, policy ludicrous. And so they have a history of this type of behavior. And it's, it, it's, it's unfortunate because this was an opportunity for us to have a real viable alternative to, to the Liberals. Uh, you know, I wish we could be um, talking about the real issues, which is the fact that we have a deficit and a debt that is out of control. We've got a criminal justice system that is a revolving door, that we still have vaccine mandates and airports and for the federal government at a time that they're no longer required. You know, there's some real substantive issues um, uh, that we need to deal with. And um, we're not able to because uh, of, you know, Pierre's campaign has become... Um, uh, a sideshow of bizarre policy announcements. Patrick Brown is our guest mayor of the city of Brampton on Toronto today. Your last sentence in your statement um, that you put out about 30 hours ago uh, after midnight last night, two nights ago, this is an indictment of the CPC and a party that is not serious about winning a general election. If if that is how you feel, do you still want to be leader of that party? Well, I uh, they've taken us, or they've taken that opportunity away by disqualifying uh, me. They haven't just disqualified me; they've disqualified the over 150,000 new members we brought into the party. You know, we signed up uh, members in every large urban, suburban setting areas the party needs to to grow desperately. We signed up a very diverse membership um, to make sure the party reflects the country. Uh, and, um, I can tell you the people I signed up are angry right now. They feel that their voice, Mm -hmm. their vote has been taken away from them. And I wonder though, you, you hire Marie Hennon, who's um, not nobody. She may be the most famous and well-established, uh, lawyer I'd say in Canada right now, I'd say she's the most well-known. Um, what are the legal means you hope to pursue? What, what's her job? What's the conversation about what you hope she does for you and your campaign? Well, uh, we have um, we have um, presented to her what the party sent to us, and she's examining um, our legal options.
But what what would some of those legal options be? Are you still hoping to be I, I'll, I, I'll take another run at it. Are you still hoping to be leader of this party through a legal means and an appeal process? If you're appealing it, it, it still means you have interest in well, being let me the say, leader. If, if they made me a candidate, I believe we had the memberships to win this. I believe we had the points and the memberships to win this leadership race. But I also realized that um, uh, political party is a private club. And so there is a, a higher legal threshold to meet. And so, and we're determining um, if an appeal, um, uh, you know, we're determining what the chance of success for an appeal is. It is a higher threshold that may be more difficult, but we're looking at um, the viability of all this right now. So the Conservative Party said last week they've got it's an amazing number. It really is about six hundred seventy five thousand members. I know you put boots on the ground. You traveled everywhere in Canada. And your your number is you got about one hundred fifty thousand of those members, new members that weren't members when Aaron O'Toole was elected or Andrew Scheer was elected. So you, you're responsible for maybe twenty five percent of those members. Is that accurate? Possibly even more. And yeah. so, um, yeah, to put this in context, when Aaron O'Toole ran for the leadership uh, he signed up 20,000 members. So we signed up 150,000. This is an extraordinary number. And where Pierre sort of focused on the anti-World Economic Forum group, the anti-Bill Gates group, the anti-vaccine group, I really focused on um, firefighters, construction workers, unions, um, cultural communities. And so I believe where I grew the party is exactly where the party needs to grow, where they had historic weaknesses. And, um, you know, I know I challenged some of the party positions. I told the party that they were wrong on Bill 21 in Quebec, where it says you can lose your job for not losing, for, for wearing an article of faith, whether it's a turban or hijab. I challenged Pierre Polyev and the party for voting, uh, for refusing to condemn Islamophobia because hate against any faith is wrong. I spoke out saying the Conservative Party leader should be at the Pride uh, Parade in Toronto. Mm-hmm. People like Pierre, who have boycotted it for 18 years, are on the wrong side of history. Love is love is love. And so on a number of policy topics, I was challenging the orthodoxy of modern conservatism. And I said very clearly, we need to build a Conservative Party where it doesn't matter who you love, where you're born, the color of your skin, what God you worship, everyone can succeed in our party, in our country. And we don't need to copy the Republicans in the U.S. We don't need to be a pale imitation of Ted Cruz and the Texas Republicans. That's not where Canada is. And frankly, I don't agree with their politics. And so my worry is the approach that Pierre Polyev is taking is really to turn the Canadian Conservative Party um, into a Trump Cruz um, Republican Party. And I could I don't support those politics. I know I know you you saw what transpired yesterday with a few councillors speaking out in Brampton. I want to give you a chance to respond. This is Brampton Deputy Mayor Martin Medario speaking about you and your leadership. So what it seems to be is a pattern. It's not exclusive to what I guess the Conservative Party is dealing with. We've been dealing with this for two years and only many of you have only caught on now. We would have preferred that he take his leave of absence, which he should have done, not mix city business with what's happening at the Conservative Party. Wish him all the best luck in the world that he be successful, but leave city of Brampton and let us focus on the issues that matter to residents. Look, politics is polarizing, okay? Eric Adams in New York, John Tory right here. Uh, not everybody's going to support you, and you're going to have people uh, gunning for your back. But what's your response to what, uh, what the deputy mayor says? So we have a split council, which is not unusual for city councils. You've got one side with one position, another side with another. Um, right now, we have a debate um, that we're at loggerheads on um, over the firing of the integrity commissioner. 
Um, when I was away um, on the leadership campaign, Councillor Medeiros and Councillor Dillon fired the integrity commissioner, Moniza Sheikh, and I believe they did so um, wrong. Mm-hmm. There was five councillors, including myself, that want this investigated, and they're blocking that investigation. And so it's created a real fight at City Hall. Our integrity commissioner uh, had a finding um, of guilt against Councillor Dillon for allegations of sexual harassment. There was a recording that showed him making advances um, uh, over 70 times where the the um, victim said no. Um, he appealed the integrity commissioner's ruling to uh, the Ontario court. The Ontario court upheld the integrity commissioner's ruling. Um, and then when I was away in the leadership campaign, these councillors fired the integrity commissioner yeah. um, to get back at her. And now there is half a council that wants this investigated. Um, and um, because council is is um, tied 5-5, we're unable to until we elect a, a, a councillor to replace the outgoing mm-hmm. councillor who got elected as an MPP. And that's what the fight at City Hall is over. Um, and uh, I certainly don't agree with Councillor Medeiros's um, side uh, to cover up Councillor Dillon's um, actions. And I, I support the five councillors that want this investigated. The Liberals won by 41 seats, 160 to 119 over Aaron mm-hmm. O'Toole uh, mm-hmm. in Ontario. I've documented this a bunch of times. It's been three utter blowouts and especially in the GTA. You're convinced, regardless of what happens with you the rest of the way in your appeal, vote to voting was 78 seats for the Liberals, 37 for the Conservatives. You're convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt, Pierre Polyev can't make up that difference and and you're the one that can. I think it's not necessarily myself. I think any um, moderate, inclusive um, conservative could could beat the Liberal NDP coalition. You look at the success of provincial conservative parties, whether it's Tim Houston in Nova Scotia um, or the Doug Ford in in Ontario. Um, there's a pathway to win in suburban Canada. I just don't think mm. it's um, by replicating the Republican Party in the U.S. And um, I do believe that Pierre Polyev would be a gift. Uh, to the Liberals. Um, you know, I've seen this show before. Look at the 2014 um, provincial election where Kathleen Wynne and, and Dalton McGuinty were on their last legs and Tim, Tim Hudak ran a campaign that yeah. was sort of a hard right campaign and they lost a third of their seats. Um, I believe that Pierre Polyev would lose a, a number of conservative seats. You'd see probably the Liberals return to majority status. I just couldn't imagine, you know, running a national campaign on trying to defend Bitcoin as a national economic policy or some of the more yeah. absurd positions that he has taken. Patrick, thanks very much for making time. Um, I, kn- I, know, I know it's been so busy, but for the show, for the radio station, um, I, I, I hope we can uh, get an update from you in the weeks to come on where your appeal goes. Thanks very much for coming on uh, today. Thank you so much. Okay. Patrick Brown's mayor of Brampton. You can uh, obviously uh, check out our next guest on her own website. She's great with tech stuff. She's great with parent stuff. And we love our chats. Uh, Amber Mack joins us right now on uh, the show on Toronto Today. It's great to have you now. You also took a car trip that I greatly envy, but you have reason to. I've never been to Prince Edward Island. I've been almost every other province and I'm dumb. I've never been to PEI yet. What am I waiting for? I have no idea, but you're right. It is a beautiful province, and I was born here and uh, grew up here, and we took a road trip out here to spend the month of July with my family. It's been a couple of summers since we've had sort of a, a normal uh, time with them in the summer. So we are very much having a wonderful time and you should definitely come visit. And you're probably like, thanks a lot, world, for not lowering gas prices by 25 cents a liter before we took the trip out as opposed to after, <laughs> right? 
Yeah, I mean, this is a real issue here in Prince Edward Island. Uh, it's actually kind of interesting. Um, public transportation has been something that they introduced a few years ago, but it wasn't really all that popular. But what I've been noticing this summer is that the buses are packed with people who are choosing to take public transportation versus driving just because the gas prices are so high. Yeah, that would have to be a, a, a big factor, um, no doubt about it. And and I think we're, we're seeing it here too. Transit's starting to pack up a little bit uh, in Toronto. And um, you've probably noticed it in the weekends, even the, even like a Saturday morning at 10 a.m., I had to take my kid to soccer in uh, from Ajax to High Park. It took me 82 minutes to go 38 kilometers. I measured it. 82 at 10 o'clock on a Saturday. So you can't drive in Toronto on the weekends even, let alone Thursday at 5 p.m. Wow, that that is actually not that surprising. I've been noticing that in Toronto, and uh, I know we're going to talk about people working mm-hmm. from home a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. But uh, we do have a, a bit of a, a traffic crisis, <laughs> at the very least, in the city. Just a touch. Now, you, your newsletter uh, pointed out something that I thought about, and I'm like, is she right? I mean, not everybody's right all the time, but I tend to align with many of your uh, philosophies, and and I think we're like minded. Flying has always sucked. I love that phrase, and I'm like. <laughs> And I think, okay, I didn't get to fly much as a kid. My parents were not the, like, let's get on a plane and go somewhere. We were always car people. I wasn't even on a plane until I went to Halifax when I was 24. So I am i don't know if I'm a rarity, but I didn't get that experience as a kid. But you're right. Like, post 9-11, it changed. And I worry now. People will be like, ah, what do I care? I'm this old. But I care about it for my kids and your kids. Like, I want them to... To have that sort of cool experience of being independent and getting to the airport and having time and wandering around aimlessly, reading a book, having a glass of wine. Like, I, that feels like that's never going to return. I really think you're right. And, you know, as someone who spent more than a decade traveling almost weekly by plane for speaking events, mm-hmm. I certainly had my share of uh, travel issues. And and in fact, I would say it was very rare that I really ever had a plane kind of leave and arrive on time. There were always issues at one end or the other. It was quite a normal occurrence. You eventually get used to that if you're traveling all the time. But I think people uh, have short memories. <laughs> and I think, you know, people are excited about travel. And I totally appreciate that as uh, I am in terms of being here in PEI. But I think at the end of the day, traveling, especially like you mentioned, since 9-11 has been something that isn't necessarily a relaxing experience for a lot of people. And we've lost a little bit of that air travel glamour that maybe used to be around decades ago. And so my impression of what's happening today is that um, I think people are frustrated, uh, but it is kind of unexpected. I think if you look at a lot of the data, you start to understand that this was bound to happen. We had massive layoffs in the airline industry. We, of course, have COVID restrictions. And then everybody wants to get out and travel. So to me, it just feels like this was sort of inevitable. And yes, it does suck. Um, but uh, it hasn't always mm. been perfect, especially in recent years. And Amber Mack's with us. You can, by the way, check out her website, ambermack.com, as always, uh, for the latest in terms of uh, articles. And obviously, she's got the podcast, The Feed, as well. We'll talk a little bit more about some issues happening in Toronto right now. You made a phenomenal point before the break and i think it was about labor um and and it was well i know it was about labor but it's something that that's been on my mind too people are like where are all the workers where are all the jobs it just takes a little bit of a step out of a comfort zone 
Um, you and I both went to journalism school and you're doing something so unique, so independent, speaking engagements, all that stuff that that I wasn't creative enough to do. And I love what I do. But when you push someone sort of either you push them out of an industry or you give them reason to seek out something else, they might not come back when you call them. And that's happening, I think, a lot in really stressful industries, airlines, healthcare, um, you know, just just stuff where, where your boss demands so much of you. And if you could find something else during the pandemic, Amber, that's where all the workers have gone. That's obvious. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, a lot of people talk about it as the great resignation, but for some people, it is the great reassessment. Mm -hmm. So they've had a chance to reassess their lives and sort of switch up what they plan to do. And I know it's been a difficult time for so many people, especially in healthcare. And many people don't have the opportunity to just shift jobs all of a sudden. But what we do see with those workers who do have some flexibility is that many of them are choosing different paths. And they've had a chance over the past couple of years to say, you know what? Uh, I'm going to try a new career. I'm going to build my own business. And then they are changing up what they're doing. And I think, again, in some cases, that can be good. Yeah, I love the, I love the idea um, that someone made a point that uh, that you never get on your uh, on your tombstone. If there's ever an inscription, he worked really hard, like they'll talk more about your families or, <laughs> or the things you accomplished personally. And there's so many people that get to 60, 65. You and I have ages to go until then, I should point out. But you, you get to 60 and 65 and nobody's going to be like, wow, what a great worker at his job. They're going to be like, well, how was your how was your dad and mom business? How was your husband wife business? How was your how, did you keep all your friends close? Like, and those are the things that you're going to look back on and go, well, you'll never think I spent too much time with my family. I spent too much time with my friends. Nobody says that when they retire. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I think what's happened with a lot of people who've had that ability to work from home, you know, I was reading a, a Stats Canada report that said the average person who can work from home, who doesn't have to commute, will save on average about an hour a day. And just think about that. All of a sudden, mm -hmm. you have seven hours back into your life where you can spend more time with your kids. You can spend more time doing the stuff that perhaps you love. I think that's why we're seeing this big shift. And we're seeing workers, many of them deciding if they can, that that they do not want to return to the office. And that's a bit of a blow, especially if you've invested in commercial real estate. And but it'll be weird if we get to recessionary times and the bosses look around and say, bad news, but I got to make some cuts. And these people are coming in all the time. And these people are go getters. And these people I can, I can see face to face and count on. And I got employees that will refuse to come back in. <sighs> that's where the rubber's going to meet the road in some cases. That's something that I think a lot of people are uh, are trepidatious about. I'll say that. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. But again, if you start to look into some of the data, I was reading an article recently in Forbes that said the average person who works at home saves their company about $22,000 a year. $22,000 a year. I mean, there's a significant cost savings. Of course, you have to build those relationships in terms mm -hmm. of trust and figure out how to be a good manager from home. But there's a lot of reasons that for those people who can do it, it makes sense, whether it's, you know, the impact on our environment, whether it's cost savings, whether it's flexibility and freedom, getting more women into the workforce because maybe they have young kids and want to be home. I mean, it actually makes a lot of sense. We're just very stubborn, especially when it comes to facts. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's accurate. Now, you love your your apps you introduce people to a lot of new apps either either via twitter or, or via your website so open there's open table there's many other restaurant apps we saw this story yesterday sheba and i were talking about it and i see the restaurant's perspective here and i'm shocked by this a restaurant owner says as many as 20 percent of her reservations 
just don't show up. And sometimes we've walked into a restaurant and we're looking around going, what's with all the empty tables and why won't they see this right away? Well, they're holding tables, but eventually those tables get given up because people aren't showing up. So I almost understand like for takeout food or anything else, Amber, why restaurants are saying you got to put your credit card down ahead of time. You can't, you can't just order five pizzas uh, and then not show up and get them because someone went to the trouble of making that and it costs businesses money to hold your tables. I totally understand why restaurants need this actually to help their economic survival. Absolutely. You know, if I want to go do a yoga class and I cancel uh, less than 24 <laughs> hours. Before the oh, class, they're quite militant about that. I've seen that happen. Yeah. Or, or a physio <laughs> appointment. You're paying, you're paying. You don't yeah, have a good excuse. Right. I mean, the same thing with many hair salons and I totally get it. I guess, you know, this is the thing that is really frustrating to me at this point is that we had so much pandemic niceness where we treated people in healthcare well, where we treated people who work in transportation well, we treated our small business owners so well. Now that things are getting back to normal, all of a sudden it feels like we're crapping on all of these people. And I just hate that we haven't learned anything from the past two years and we don't seem to have the empathy that we once had. And that's just a, a terrible waste of what we should have learned over the past 24 months. Um, yeah, let's jump ahead to school ending. I, I, so my kid graduated from uh, eighth grade and we went to the graduation. My parents came up from London. Like they haven't been anywhere except, you know, grocery stores and Canadian tire for two years of, of their own volition. And, and they want to, they want to keep other, each other safe. And I support that. But you and I signed a document in my goodness, January about getting kids back to school. And, and I know you and I had a couple discussions about it. Um, I, I just I thought it was so celebratory. And I God, I'm just I'm fingers crossed, toes crossed, whatever crossed that whatever kind of magical formula we hit in April, M May and June can carry into September, October, November for normalcy. Because same thing as we talked about with the with the flying. I don't care what my experience was like. I've heard people say, ah, high school, what's the... It matters when you're a kid. Two years is like 10 years to the rest of us adults. And you and I must have been so... I think we were, again, we were, we were so ambitious for what school was going to be those last few months. But I think we got what we wanted. It was great. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, my son is uh, 13. So uh, going into grade eight, it's his last year at a school that he's been at for almost 10 years. And uh, I just want him to have a normal experience and have those really special moments that 13 year olds should have. So I am hoping that we go back into the school year and have uh, just everything being back to normal. And, and I think if we learned anything, I, I hope it's that school is essential and um, schools should be the first to open, last to close. And um, I think it's so important for our kids, especially for mental health, because we have a crisis here that we're not able to really deal with in terms of young people and what they've experienced. Uh, but let's hope we can throw more resources at that. You got it. Like nobody wants to be told you so guy or gal, but many of these studies now you're probably looking at, and I'm looking at going, uh-huh. Oh, learning loss really oh it was harder on more poor kids than rich kids oh you're really and younger kids more than university age or high school kids of course all those things were going to be true yeah, absolutely. And and even just physical health, you know, we have mental health issues. Of course, we have physical mm -hmm. health issues as well in terms of young people not moving as much as they were uh, pre pandemic and doing the sports that they so enjoyed. You know, unfortunately, my son, I think, you know, he's past that point where he's going to be joining those teams again. 
but before the pandemic, he was playing soccer and basketball and doing all these sports. And he's just at that age where after two years of not doing that, he's kind of dropped out. And to me, that is sort of a devastating consequence. And it's something we should not ignore. I'm a former tennis uh, instructor and I'm a damn good one. So you you name your price, although maybe I should name my <laughs> price. I'm making the offer here. What kind of negotiator am I if I let you set the <laughs> Set the price. I'll get them on. I'll get them running. I'll get them sweating, sweating it out, uh, running backhand to forehand. I can do it. I can do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one reason we love being out here is that there's so much to do outside and great beaches and, you know, just enjoying the the fresh air. And uh, we're just having a great time. Well, thanks for taking a break from the fresh air uh, and uh, and being a friend to our show and our audience as well. You can visit her ambermac.com. Uh, it's always great stuff there to learn and uh, and be better as a result. Thank you so much for the time. Hey, thanks for having me on. You bet. There's uh, Amber Mack joining us. Go to ambermack.com, find out more. This is real interesting, and I got several minutes to get to this. I saw this story yesterday. Things have, I don't know if they've cooled in Canada about Roe v. Wade south of the border. There's obviously a lot of coverage in the United States for it, but it, for the most part, is a U.S.-based issue until, until we wonder if Canadian doctors will provide abortions to Americans coming to Canada. I don't know how I feel about that. I want Americans to have access to uh, make their own decision. I would strongly consider myself pro-choice, and I feel like I was raised in a pro-choice house, and I always have been. Having two kids of my own, helping that process along anyway, didn't change that. I know sometimes the delivery room changes people's perspectives on it. I do think there are always important conversations to have about access and cost and term limits. Yeah, there are. But I saw this yesterday. Canadian abortion doctors cautioned over prospect of charges, lawsuits if helping U.S. patients. Never occurred to me, really. Um, They want the federal government, this organization, the Canadian Medical Protective Association, uh, wants to the federal government to uh, to work in tandem with them to work with provinces like Ontario and obviously big cities like Toronto, where you're going to get more access than you are, um, to be honest, in rural areas or in the wilderness. Uh, they want make they want to make sure physicians have liability protection. But how do you do that? I don't know the, how you influence legal proceedings and status in the United States. Not quite the same, but we talked about this earlier on the show this week, how you could waive a random drug conviction for possession uh, in Canada, and that could be expunged from your record so that when you go for a job interview or you get asked somewhere, have you ever been you know, convicted of a crime, you can say no up here. But can you say that in the United States? You know, they swipe, they swipe your passport when you cross the Peace Bridge in Buffalo or the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor, Detroit. My favorite, the Blue Water Bridge in Sarnia. They're going to they're gonna swipe your passport, and I think they can still see those things. But what if you're planning on going to the United States and they say, I'm sorry, we can't, we can't have this. We can't let you in. You're a criminal. Why? You provided an abortion to an American who lives in a state where it's not legal. And this is something that people are talking about. I guess it should have occurred to all of us at the time. But to be honest, to be honest, when Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court, I think we got a little too much, a little too much. This is about us now. This is about us. We got to make sure this doesn't happen here. It's the handmaid's tale. This could happen. It's not going to happen here. (laughs) There's so many things that happen in American politics. We're watching it in UK politics right now that really don't influence who we are. You might want them to. You might want them never to. But they don't have too much influence on access and healthcare here. 
I don't think either of those things are accurate. If anything, we know two things. We know two things about about abortion laws in the United States. A, Roe v. Wade was really clunky. It was almost amazing that it dangled there like a sword for 50 years and it was never uh, overturned and challenged. OK, there if you if you dig into the document itself and the case itself, it's amazing. It lasted a half century. And that's not to say that women, I believe, and I think the vast majority of Americans believe should have at least some say, if not most of the say in terms of what they do with their bodies. Andrew Sullivan was on Bill Maher's show last week talking about uh, pro-choice. And I think what, what he says for the United States does indeed go for Canada as well. It's the only Western country to have abortion as a constitutional right. No other, not even Canada, not Germany, not any of the other liberal countries. They did it by democratic rule. And the Congress could do it today if they wanted to pass a law saying abortion is illegal in, illegal in every state. But they don't have the votes because this country is divided. This case that forced this decision, Dobbs, was a case that said that abortion should be legal for 15 weeks. Do you know what the, you know what the legal limit in Germany is? I know. They're, 12 we're, weeks. Right. But they also have you, they Western European. Yeah. Say what? They also have health care for everybody. Well, that's so, fair enough. And that's Katie Herzog on the panel, who's brilliant, just brilliant. I love Katie Herzog. And she makes the point they've got access to health care. And we do. We've told you before, Prince Edward Island is no more, no less restrictive than Florida in terms of where can you go to get an abortion within the geographical confines. You've got 15 weeks in Prince Edward Island in Canada. OK, very liberal, socialized health care, all that stuff. But then you have to go elsewhere. you got to go off the island. You can get recommendations. You can go to Nova Scotia. You can go to New Brunswick. You can go wherever you want. But you can't get an abortion in Prince Edward Island after 15 weeks. And that was news to me several weeks ago. And I can't tell you how many people heard us say that a couple times on the show and go, wow, I had no idea. This is a different problem in its entirety as well, is that I don't know with our healthcare system. OK, it's called they use the phrase medical tourism, and that has its risk to it. OK. I don't want I, I don't want I don't want women's health at risk based on their lack of access. But I'm not sure why Canada has to step up, wave their arms in the air, jump up and down and say, come here. I'm not sure why that's the case when there will be at least 25 to 30 states where there will be access, where if you're paying out of pocket here, that's problematic. Are, are you taking loans? Are you taking promises of credit? from American women coming up to Canada to do that. And does this put a further strain on our system? Well, some people do think that. Here's Joyce Arthur, Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada. But even a small number of Americans coming up could overwhelm our health systems. Uh, and yes, we're concerned. Um, currently, we don't have the capacity uh, or the access to accommodate Americans, at least not very many of them. So that's interesting. She knows, okay? She knows better than me and likely better than you if you're listening right now. It's a broken medical hospital system we're in right now. How do we feel big picture, macro picture, not micro, macro about allowing abortions? It's a pretty time sensitive operation. I think we can say that. Okay. When you decide it's go time. Okay. You you don't just put these things off for three or four months. It's finite. Okay. It's not like "Ah, I can, I can make it through on a bad knee or a bad ankle for two years. You have to make that call. It's an agonizing call. It's an emotional call. It's a call that lives with people, whichever way they decide, clearly. But also, can we be practical? It's a drain on resources. It's increased costs in the system. 
Do we have healthcare workers at risk of not being able to cross the U.S. border? Threats of violence? Maybe a lawsuit? A criminal record? I don't think we've had that conversation enough for the Canadian government to wave their arms and go, just come here instead. We got to figure out a little bit more about that context. Here's a stat that I found really interesting. Way less demand in Ontario for abortion since 2007, even pre-pandemic. 2011 to 2014, 40,000 per year in Ontario performed. The goal is to have fewer. I think we'd agree on that. Not limit access, but have fewer. They're very traumatic decisions to make, clearly. But in 2018 to 20, under 30,000. So somehow, some way, we started having less. And we started having less of a flood into OBGYNs and surgeons having to make that decision. Do we get to that point and, and then just give it all up because we're accessing and providing service for Americans? Not sure. We got to have more conversation about it. Steve Pakin is the awesome host of the Agenda TVO, uh, taking some vacation time this week, but the news never stops. So we thought let's uh, let's get him to weigh in on a few issues. And Steve, we didn't think we'd be talking to you uh, moments after Boris Johnson resigned. But um, like I said, the cabinet in the UK, it's really something when you explain it to somebody that doesn't fall politics, maybe like you or I do. You're just it's an all powerful thing when they're done with you. It's Margaret Thatcher, Tony Blair. It doesn't matter. You got to go. It's really something, and, and, and you're quite right to give those examples from the past. So this is not a particularly new phenomenon in Great Britain. But, but if you do look around the world, uh, when the wheel turns, the wheel really turns. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, you know, Boris Johnson is a great example of somebody who, who came in, you know, uh, almost like a shining knight in armor, uh, looked politically invulnerable, uh, quirky, yes, all of his particular peccadillos, which were very odd, um, the hair. Let's start there, uh, and, and we can go on. Uh, but but very popular and seeming to be on the right side of an important issue for for the majority of, of Britons. And look where we are. Not that many years later, and he's out as quickly as this. I mean, you could add uh, in our own Canadian context, you could add uh, Jason Kenney to the list. Another guy who looked completely fireproof, and then what happened to him? Kathleen Wynne. Another story. When the wheel turns these days, Greg, my goodness, it really does run you over, doesn't it? Yeah, and and it's such a distinction between um, politics in the United Kingdom and politics here, because it doesn't take much, right? And just in the last several months, you're like, can you believe that liberal MP doesn't agree with every single thing the prime minister said or done? And I can't believe it. Now you get the big ones, right? Like the Jody Wilson-Raybould. But there's but when you got 50 plus cabinet ministers and Steve, you probably saw it from a farther. We, we had new cabinet ministers hired in the last three days and they quit within 72 hours. They're like, oh, I just I, I'm not sure I can do this job after all. It's unbelievable. No kidding. No kidding. The thing was just absolutely falling apart. And and uh, it, it our system. It's funny. Our system in Canada is the same system they have there. I mean, technically speaking, we both have the Westminster British parliamentary system. Uh, but what happened there, I, I mean, you probably got to go back to John Diefenbaker before you, you find anything, uh, you know, as, as tumultuous uh, as, as what they're experiencing right now. And even then, he, you know, he had to lose an election before uh, they threw him out. Boris Johnson hasn't lost an election here. He's simply lost the confidence of the vast majority of people in the United Kingdom and his caucus and cabinet. It's quite astonishing. Yeah, th- this would be like a news conference later today where in in Ottawa where, you know, Christopher Freeland and Anita Anand, uh, let's get Olympia and Adam Vancouver up there going, hey, this guy here, we cannot work with this guy. That would never happen in Canada. It would never happen. No, different, 
very different uh, cultural sensibilities, that's for sure. Patch, uh, it's uh, Steve Pakin joining us, and uh, we wanted to ask you about Patrick Brown. You must have takeaways uh, from the news that broke on uh, on Tuesday night that he's out, and obviously we've learned a lot subsequently about some of the machinations and the negotiations um, between the the CPC's um, you know uh, uh, you know party engine, if you will, the machinery of it, and the Brown camp. What, what were your initial thoughts, and have they evolved in the last twenty four hours with what you know? Well, the first thing I thought of was, I mean, I have seen in the past with, uh, oh, I don't know, probably 20 different leadership conventions that I've covered, I have seen situations where the organizing committee will throw out somebody who's, you know, going to come eighth. I don't think I've ever seen a situation. Uh, I mean, this this feels unprecedented. I, I probably should check it more before I say this, but this feels unprecedented where two months before convention day, somebody who's... Uh, you know, arguably in second place. I think everybody acknowledges mm-hmm. he's in second place with a path to victory. I mean, who knows, but at least a path to victory is thrown out by the organizing committee of the party and where so few details are made public about the thing. Uh, this is very curious. This is very curious. And uh, that was the first thing I thought. The second thing I thought was, if Patrick Brown's numbers are correct, he signed up 150,000 new party members who intended, presumably, to, to uh, vote for him at a leadership election, uh, the results of which would be made September 10th. Those people have now been disenfranchised. And in the interest of full disclosure here, Greg, mm-hmm. my wife's one of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's a friend of Patrick Brown's. She purchased a membership for the Conservative Party of Canada for the purposes of, of voting for him at the leadership election. I, I mean, all of those people, uh, she's one of 150,000 who now don't have a candidate. Uh, they, signed, they signed up to vote for him. You know, whether they will actually mark a second or third or fourth choice is unknown. They certainly intended to vote for him as a first choice. What happens to them right now? Um, uh, lots of questions and, and very, very few answers at this stage of the game, which I also find rather curious. Do you buy the, the Pierre Polyev camp, um, you know, Robert Benzie, as you know, and you've chatted with him many times, so well connected. Uh, Robert Benzie in a piece in the Star this morning documents the Polyev camp. And, and this isn't public posturing. He doesn't think, obviously, or he doesn't or he doesn't quote the source. They wanted they wanted a fight. They didn't want Brown going out this way. They wanted to prove they had the numbers to kind of wipe the mat with him. Do you do you buy that or do you think this is like there's a little element of relief in the poly of camp that the one roadblock with Brown saying this guy cannot win Ontario. Don't take your chances here. He can't win the seats. How do you think the poly of camp really feels? I think both explanations are potentially true. And when people tell me things who are involved in politics, the first question I ask myself is, is this really a defensible argument? I mean, can they make this argument with a straight face? And I think the Polyev camp can make the argument with a straight face that it would have been better for Polyev to beat his prime challenger and therefore emerge from a convention that much stronger. I think that's a defensible argument. Mm -hmm. It's also a defensible argument to say, phew, the one guy who could probably take us down is now out, and our path to the finish line is a lot shorter right now. That's also a defensible argument. So I, 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 I know the cynics listening right now uh, would probably say, oh, I bet you Paul Lieb is just you know, licking his chops with glee today because Brown's out of the race. Brian Mulroney always used to say that the, that the Tories do better when they have tough, bruising leadership contests because the subsequent elections they tend to win. And he had that from personal experience, right? The 76 leadership in 19, uh, uh, where Joe Clark beat him. Joe Clark won the next election. 
the 83 leadership, Mm -hmm. which he defeated Joe Clark in the subsequent election in 1984. Brian Mulroney won. So when there are good, strong, intense leadership fights among the multitude of strong candidates, the Conservative Party in the past has done really well. Uh, Sometimes when it hasn't been all that close, they haven't done well. Uh, you can't take that to the bank 100% of the time, but I can understand the argument why it's better for Poliev to defeat Brown as opposed to sort of win going in the back door, which, you know, you got to think would be the case now. Steve Pake enjoys from TV Ontario. I'm so glad you brought that up. I have such indelible memories of like really hot, sweaty Saturday afternoons, and it was Turner beating Kretchen, holding him off in 84, becoming the de facto prime minister, and then getting obviously hit pretty hard in the 84 election. But I remember that Clark Mulroney day and looking it up right now, Steve, for this is very inside baseball, but we love this stuff. Clark was ahead of Mulroney on the first three ballots. In fact, he swamped him on the first one, 36.5% to 29.2%. But by the time John Crosby dropped out, Michael Wilson endorsed Mulroney as well, who was more a fringe candidate. Mulroney had had the votes by the fourth ballot. That's how this look at. We we just did this with Maxime Bernier and Andrew Scheer. Like the first ballot leader does not always hold that lead. No, that's true. And the fact that you gave the John Turner example almost buttresses the argument even more. (laughs) That was not a close convention. Yeah. John Turner won that one big on the second ballot, not the Mulroney's victory uh, in 1983. He won it on the second ballot. In 1984, same month, June, and because it wasn't a particularly tough leadership race and it wasn't a particularly tough contest, that you could argue that's one of the contributing factors which, uh, which did not allow liberals to come together and help Mr. Turner in 84. Uh, I mean, there's lots of other arguments as well. But I, I, there's something to Mr. Mulroney's argument that a good, tough, bruising leadership election race makes everybody stronger at the end of it, particularly the winner, because they've had to go through something intense in order to win. And, you know, Pierre, Pierre Polyev now has two months, more than two months, to hang around until September 10th. And if Patrick Brown does not manage to um, legally find a way to get back into the race, you know, did this race just get a lot snoozier? Did Canadians just get a lot less interested? I mean, you could argue yes. Yeah, I, I, I'd i argue yes. I know people think, oh, you guys like a good on politics, you like a good scandal. But I wanted a good race. And I know there's conservatives out there that wanted... Like you said, put the put the leadership candidates to the ultimate test. Make sure they can. It's not like a, not unlike a sports team. Beat the best competition. Prove you're the best. Then enter the general election. Well, even though maybe three years from now on a real roll. And and if if you know if Pierre uh, is just it's if this is in essence a walkover this September, Steve, that's not really that's not really the challenge that we you and I have just been talking about. Well, not only that, remember how this leadership race has been characterized, and that is very much as a battle for the for the very definition of what it means to be a conservative in Canada today. And in some respects, the Polyev-Brown showdown was going to be a manifestation of that. It was going to be mm-hmm. Polyev's sort of much more rugged, freedom-based, populist, uh, anti-establishment, uh, fear of the quote-unquote gatekeepers, that whole thing, Trumpian almost, right? Almost Trumpian view of politics versus Brown's more pragmatic, progressive conservatism. And that showdown was going to, I think, resolve uh, in the minds of a lot of people what it meant to be a conservative in Canada today. Can Jean mm-hmm. Charest pick up the torch from Brown and represent that part of the party spectrum? I mean, so far, the Charest campaign you know, has mm-hmm. not taken flight. It just hasn't. He hasn't signed up enough members, mm-hmm. and he doesn't appear to have good what Brown had going for him. Uh, we'll see. Maybe that fight can still take place uh, between Polyev and Charest. And if it does, you know, then conservatives can take some satisfaction that that question is being dealt with. If it doesn't, 
um, again, Conservatives and Canadians as a whole will lose out because that big, Mm. strong struggle has not taken place. Love your insight as always, Stephen, and for making time for our show. By the way, a really astute listener uh, loves hearing you and points out Peter Pocklington was a candidate in that. I'm like, <laughs> in that '83. You know what's crazy? Peter Pocklington <laughs> came. I was at that race. I remember covering that. Peter Pocklington was about fifteen or twenty votes behind Michael Wilson, like the owner of the Edmonton Oilers. <laughs> Uh, was was right on the heels of one of the great finance ministers in Canadian history, which tells you a lot about how sometimes being famous is better than being smart. Maybe the maybe the phrase Prime Minister Pocklington is about the only thing that would have made the 80s more interesting, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> long shot as it was. Steve, thanks for uh, checking in with us. Uh, we'll look for you back on uh, on television next week. Thanks for the time. You got it. Take care. Uh, Steve Pakin from TVO's The Agenda. Housing prices in Toronto. Um, there's a lot of people wondering about real estate market. There's a lot of people just sort of sitting and waiting things out a little bit. But I see signs in my neighborhood. They go up two weeks later. There's a sold sign in front. Everybody who's an agent wants to let people know that they sold. They got over asking. I get that. Let's talk to Treb's chief market analyst this morning, Jason Mercer. Jason, it's great to have you on. Thanks for making the time for us. No problem. Good morning. I'm, uh, I'm happy to have you here. It, it, it's one of those scenarios where I do wonder, um, what's a myth right now about the real estate market? I don't think we go right from bull to bear and bear to bull that easily. So much of it is demand. So much of it is time of year. Um, but I, I do think people, it does sound like they're being a little more patient with the process. There's maybe not the bidding wars we would talk about a year ago, year and a half ago, where 25 people are, are putting bids in on one place in a 48 hour span. Yeah, I mean, the market conditions have certainly changed, especially over, you know, the last three months or so. I mean, if you think about how we turned the page from 2021 into 2022, market conditions were still really tight in January and February with a lot of competition between buyers. In fact, it looks to be that our our peak price for 2022 will have been uh, in February. But since the Bank of Canada started hiking interest rates and, and quite rapidly, you know, we have seen some would-be home buyers move to the sidelines. Um, and and those buyers kind of come in two categories. The, the the first being those who quite simply, you know, were already on the margin of affordability before interest rates hike started. Um, and, and now they kind of have to reassess. Maybe they're going to look at a different type of housing. Maybe they're going to look in a different part of the GTA or some combination thereof. On the other hand, you got households that very much can still afford to purchase even with higher borrowing costs, but they see that market conditions are changing. So they're taking a bit of a step back until they see how things uh, uh, pan out, how things kind of stabilize in the months ahead. I think it's the one you make a great point there because I think it's the one thing of all the purchases you make, you want to take the most time with it. And at times the GTA real estate market, and I'd say that'd be the case for other major cities around the world. Vancouver would be another one um, rushing into things can, can have some regrets. This is not buying a TV. This is not buying snow tires. It's a massive decision. So you don't want to feel like we got to make this call. We got to, we got to get this down payment organized. It's all got to be done in 72 hours. If you're going to live somewhere 25, 30 years, you want to take more time than that to make your decision yeah i agree i mean it's the single largest purchase for most households in the gta most households um in 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 canada and so you know we've seen market conditions change quite a bit 
over the last few months where, you know, a lot of buyers are faced with more choice in the market and they're benefiting from more choice in the market. And so that's allowed for them to, you know, have a bit more negotiating power and also take their time. If they can't get a deal done um, on, on, on one house, they're a little bit more confident today versus this time last year that there's another house out there that's going to meet their needs. And so you're right, there's, there's a little bit more patience in the equation now um, in comparison to a year ago. And I, and I think it's going to be really interesting to watch you know, as we move through the summer and into early fall, what we see in terms of listings, because sales are down, whereas listings are sort of flatlined in comparison to last year. But, you know, most people are, who want to work are working right now. There's not a lot of reason to have to immediately sell your home. And so if you don't think you're going to get the price you want, you may start to see some would-be sellers start to move to the sidelines as well. And if you start to see listings uh, follow a similar track to sales, um, you'll see market conditions perhaps tighten up a little bit um, as we move into the fall, and that could actually provide some support for price. It's been trending a little bit lower over the last few months. Jason Mercer's kind of to join us, Toronto Real Estate Board's Chief Market Analyst on Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Condo prices felt like when the pandemic started, uh, condo sales dropped. Why? Well, for about a year and a half or so, it, you know, it's it's great to be in the city, but but A, you may not need to go into the office five days a week, which is a big reason to work downtown is easy access maybe to your workplace. B, um, people like the nightlife or they want to go to clubs, ball games, concerts, wherever, the library, the, the, the science center. And when those things aren't open, the condo seems less important. As we're getting all back to it, price of gas, it's hard to drive around this city, all those factors. Are we getting an, an uptick in demand for condos and condo value because you're, get, you're getting to live in a vibrant city again, a lot more vibrant than it was a year ago even at this time? Yeah, I mean, the condo market initially um, you know, suffered the most. It's a segment that, mm. that, 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 that saw um, the slowest recovery as we moved through the, the pandemic. And for the reasons you mentioned, and on top of that, I'll also add that uh, – you know, uh, the, the condo market is driven to a certain degree by first-time buyers. And a lot of these were younger households uh, that were also disproportionately affected by, you know, the lockdown and, and uh, uh, from an employment perspective. Uh, but that segment, the condo segment, started coming back really strongly as we moved through uh, 2021. And, and while sales are down, just like other uh, segments over the last few months, um, you are seeing prices hold up much more. Like if you compare the average selling price for condos in the GTA, they're still up by, you know, getting on 10%, 9.3% year over year in June, whereas the detached home price is up by 3.5%. Mm-hmm. And so the condo market's still a tighter segment um, than what you're seeing in, for, say, traditional single-family homes. And some of that has to do with the fact that, you know, there are some young people who are more confident today than they were, say, a couple of years ago. But also, um, it, it's, a, it's a lower price segment on average. And so when you start to see the impact of interest rates, people start looking um, to, to segments that, that perhaps are lower in price so they can mitigate some of that uh, impact of higher borrowing costs. I think about... Um the the work from home scenario and maybe that is shifting for mo- most workplaces so you've probably got a lot better grasp of the data all i've got is a, a you know a sort of a uh, an anecdotal sense of it but i hear and talk to people who say greg when the pandemic started i moved out of the city didn't need to go into the office anymore and if i did I, maybe i needed to go in one or two times a week so we saw smoking real estate increases or, you know, if you went west as far as like Guelph, even as London is an on fire market. So if you only needed to come back to Toronto or Mississauga once a week, those places worked for you. 
Now that bosses seem to be implying um, this can't go on forever, we're going to need you back more than one or two times a week. Are those markets cooling? And and as we said, that that would be, again, more incentive to to live closer to the city instead of further away. But we saw a little bit of an exodus out to, you know, an hour or two drive away because people didn't, didn't need to come in. What are you seeing from the data? Yeah, so a couple of points. At the end of last year, um, we, we did some research in conjunction with the Toronto Region Board of Trade, and, and what we were looking at is, 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 is both talking with, with executives um, associated with uh, uh, jobs in the downtown core, and then also polling uh, people and, and sort of seeing what the expectation was for 2022. And, and certainly the expectation was that there was going to be some sort of movement back to work, probably on a hybrid basis where, you know, people were working a certain number of days back in the office and, and, and then, you know, obviously working uh, some of that from, from, from home as well. And so, you know, we're, we're definitely going to see a, a different scenario this year than we saw in 2021 and certainly uh, 2020. From the perspective of, you know, the real estate markets and the broader greater golden horseshoe, and you mentioned some of them, I mean, those markets actually had already been heating up prior to COVID-19. A lot of that just had to do with affordability. And so, mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you couldn't find a home, say, in, in, in Mississauga or somewhere in Halton region, maybe you'd look a little bit further afield, say, in a, in a, in a Guelph or a Kitchener. And we had actually seen the share of Treb realtors who were doing deals outside of the GTA proper really trending upwards. Um, over the past number of years. And so while the pandemic kind of put that under the microscope, it was actually a trend that was was already coming about before that. Yeah, it, it's one of those things I, I think is worth keeping a, keeping a dramatic eye on because I I couldn't figure it out. I grew up in, in the London area. And when I, you know, even asking my parents who live outside of the city about not just, you know, we talk about their home's value or neighbor's home value. The, the building hasn't stopped in those communities. Those communities have gotten massive. Um, and at the same time, I'm like, are these all people that just want to be further away from the city or are they people that work in the Bay in Toronto that just don't have to go in anymore? And it seems like it's a combination of both anecdotally. Yeah. And if you look at, you know, other consumer polling we do and, and especially around the type of home that people would like to purchase. I mean, there's still a lot of interest in that traditional single family home. And, and for a lot of households, you know, purchasing, say, that single or semi within the GTA proper, um, you know, j- just isn't a possibility, especially if you're kind of an early round buyer. And so, you know, a lot of people have looked mm-hmm. further field in the Hamiltons, Kittners, Guelphs, and, and you know, in, in the East, you know, even even out past uh, Durham region. And so, uh, you know, it's a trend we've been seeing and, and you know, to a certain degree, I expect it to continue. I mean, the population isn't going to stop growing. Uh, in, in the greater Toronto area, we're seeing record levels of immigration into Canada and the GTA and GGH are the single greatest regional beneficiaries of that in Canada. And so despite, you know, the shorter term impacts of, mm. of borrowing costs, we're going to still see, you know, strong demand for housing, whether we're talking about ownership or rental moving forward. No doubt. Jason Mercer, uh, Treb's chief market analyst. Thanks for getting up early for us and our audience, Jason. Really enjoyed the conversation and I hope we can do it again. Hey, no problem. We'll talk soon. Awesome. Uh, yeah, it's one of those things where I, I think about, uh, uh, you know, the fact that there's been a bit of an exodus from large U.S. cities. And some of that has been deemed being able to work from home. Some of the, If you've seen the numbers, people have left New York City. People have left Los Angeles County. Okay, I was talking to a couple people out in L.A. there uh, about it. I wish I'd recorded the conversation and brought it back in February. But I bet you it's even more true now. I know that it gets look, COVID policy gets politicized, but not not to not to every extent. If it affects your household and you want to live as you want to live, 
so so it gets said, you have seen Florida and Texas for for better or worse. Okay, I'm just telling you what the numbers are. You don't have to love why it's happening. Florida and Texas are getting big influxes of population to their cities. Orlando is, Miami is, Austin is, Austin especially is. It's a it and it, that's Austin's a very progressive city in a very you know Republican state. But L.A. and New York have just bled people out. And I don't think it's happened in Toronto. They're telling you the Highway 413. Big reason we need it is because of immigration and where immigrants are going to live. So it's heaven forbid we'd be proactive and build a highway before we need it instead of worrying about roads after we need it. Heaven forbid. Thanks very much for listening to Toronto Today. We're back with a live show tomorrow between 530 and 9 to wrap Pretty busy news week. No doubt we'll have new things to react to, and you're part of that reaction as well. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. You can listen to us on the Radio Player Canada app or at 640toronto.com, beginning at 5.30 a.m. 5.30 a.m.? Yeah, okay, 5.30 a.m. tomorrow.